The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading for this morning is from Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We made it. Um, this is song. Hello. We like to do this each week. Just to stay humble, you know. Uh, stay humble. As we work on the mic, let me. <laughs> cupcakes? Whoa. Whoa, cupcakes. Thank you, Nathan Janeway. Cupcakes and clumpies right there. And we've got yard games. We want you to invite your friends. We want you to come. And it's cool because it's 436. You can come, hang out for a while, have a cupcake, dessert, and then go out to dinner with your people. And so dessert before dinner is always best. Um, We have a lot to celebrate. We started two years ago. And we have had personal losses in this church. And then we ran into a little thing called the coronavirus. And two years later, we're still here. And that's because of the presence and providence of the Lord. Y'all stepped up and loved each other and showed up and put on masks, even though that's not fun. And we just have a lot to celebrate. And so I encourage you to come and feel free to bring your friends. There's not going to be any presentation tonight. No one's going to make them take a pill or drink some Kool-Aid. We're just going to hang out. And so please feel free to come and bring a neighbor or a coworker. As we dive into the text, we're in Titus 1. We're in Titus 1, and we uh, are looking at Paul, who is a church planter, give advice to Titus, who is a church planter, And he's going to tell them exactly what he needs to do in order to get churches going. And in particular, he's going to tell them what to do and to get a church going in Crete. And Crete has this reputation for being a very worldly, sinful, debaucherous place. And so it's it's fascinating for us getting church planting advice, living in a culture, living in a world that is very broken. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning But before we dive in, I just want to make a very important clarification. Um, And here's what it is. Paul 
is talking to a Christian pastor and he is teaching him to look for these other believing Christians. That's important for you to know as context because if you think Paul is talking to the culture of Crete, it sounds like Paul is saying, here's what you're going to have to do to come to Christ. You Cretans are going to have to get better, change, become above reproach, get rid of the drunkenness, get rid of the the debauchery, the wildness, you Cretans are going to have to change. And I want to get it very clear to you that Paul is talking to one who believes and is planting a church and to the other ones who already believe. Here's why that's important. There are people that do not believe who think it's the Christian's job to worry about the people who do not believe's behavior. And Paul says it's the Christian's job to worry about the behavior of those that already believe. Instead of shake your fist out there and your finger out there at those who don't yet know, Paul talks to the leadership of the church and says, start with yourselves. And I want you to hear that because I don't want you who don't know Christ or who have doubts and are cynical about Jesus to think this is what yet one more list of rules we've got to do before we're allowed into the church and that is not the case Paul is talking to people who already embrace Christ and he's saying rather than rather than worry about those Cretans behaviors let's start with you now with that said let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. Would you move powerfully this morning? We want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We want to be of use to Jesus in this world and in this time. But we focus so much on ourselves. God, by your grace, help us to live lives of holiness for the sake of others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As far as I can tell, there are two types of people when it comes to hobbies. The first type, my type, they want their hobbies to cost nothing of them. Meaning, if you want to watch soccer but not play soccer, if you want to grill food and stand outside with a drink in your hand, if you want to watch every show that Netflix has ever put on, you're my kind of people. The hobby requires nothing of you. In fact, you like it specifically because it requires nothing of you. And there are other people with their hobbies that their hobby needs to challenge them They need to be able to get better at their hobby. In fact, their hobby has to bring them new difficulty in order to be a hobby for them. These people are sick. (laughs) My brother-in-law, Jeremy McCaslin, his hobby was snowboarding. And then his hobby is surfing. He does not like something that comes naturally to him. It's not thrilling for him unless he's learning and failing and falling. In fact, I have another friend who's just like that, that he was, he was so good on a motorcycle 
that he said, for me to take the next step as a motorcycler, I'd have to go pro. And I'm not interested in that season of my life, so I'm not going to ride a motorcycle anymore. Once you're finally good at it, you're not going to ride a motorcycle anymore. And then surfing. My brother-in-law, Jeremy, describes it like this. He says, I asked him, how many times did you go surfing before you could stand up on the board? And he said, I'm not sure. A lot. To properly ride a wave basically takes months of falling and tumbling around underwater like you're in a washing machine. That sounds like a lot of fun. Mmm, just got off work. I know, I'll go drown myself. So I asked him, why would you do this? And he says, it's so beautiful. With surfing, you have to do all this hard work just to stand on the board. And then you're not surfing yet. You do all these months of work just so you can be in a place where you stand on the board, and then you start working at being a surfer. You put in the work so that you can put in the work. And I said to him, what's the matter with you? Why would you do all that? And he said, you don't understand. Once you catch your first wave, you love it. And you can't wait to get back to it. It's a little bit of a picture of what Paul is talking about. There's, there's these dynamics in the church that we think it doesn't matter about holiness and hard work and who needs to do it and how long they need to do it. And Paul is talking to the leadership of the church. And he's saying, you have got to put in the work before you even put in the work. But again, the problem is, is the outside world hears to us, hears us saying, you have to put in the work before you can walk in the door. That's not what he's saying. In fact, how sad is it that people cannot change without the work of the local church? That's what Paul's saying. If we're going to have a church, we need elders. We need the local church. He's saying the, the outside world believes that when I can't go there because I haven't put in the work yet. And yet our message to them is that you can't be transformed until you're here. And so that's what's so important for us to hear is that Paul is talking about a group of people who are trusting in Christ and want to see things change. And he's saying, you focus on your holiness before you start wagging your finger at anybody else. You put in the work so that we can put in the work to rescue the people. Some of you, when you look at a world like this, you think, how are we ever going to win? How are we ever going to win people to Christ? And he's been doing it a long time, exactly this way, through relationships. Meaning he doesn't say, Paul, go to the corner street and preach out loud to people that aren't listening to you. He says, Paul, don't get the perfect program in place. Don't put the perfect brochure in place and then give that out to people. What he's actually saying here is that if you want people to change, you yourselves have to be changed. And if you want to know that that's true, think about your own spiritual life. Isn't it true that you can genuinely track your spiritual life back to a person or two? If I were to ask you to give your testimony, wouldn't you say, well, actually, I was doing this and doing this, and then this person, this woman, 
or this man or this group. We don't like it, but things in the kingdom change slowly and over time, and they change because of the work of a few individuals. And he's saying, if you want all that big, scary numbers out there to change, you small group of people need to change. It's important to say here that there are other parts of this letter and other parts of other letters that Paul will talk to about women in the church, deacons in the church, older women in the church, younger men in the church. He'll talk lots. So this is just one portion of God's Word together as we look. But when he's talking about elders, he's not talking about board members. He's not talking about people who are incredible at their career. What he's talking about is men of character. And it's not just advice for them. He wants the elders of the church to be men of character so that the rest of the church can start looking like people of character. In other words, he's saying that the the godliness level, if there were such a thing in a church, can't surpass the leaders of that church. So the leaders of that church need to work at being godly. We have to put in the work. We who already trust in Christ have to put in the work before we can even put in the work so that we can enjoy it. Part of the problem of how we've framed sanctification to the world is that it is a bummer. As one person has said, and I've told you before, we think of sanctification, God slowly changing us over time as broccoli come down from heaven. It doesn't taste very good, but it's good for us, so we might as well do it. And he's saying, what if you modeled to the world a holiness that was so attractive, so enticing, so life-giving, such a blessing to others that people would want to come near, they would want to be near you? In other words, think about this. The culture that he's speaking to is a bunch of people who are wild and don't know Christ and are doing whatever they want to do. And he's saying those wild people would actually want to be near Christians. Why? Because the Christians' lives are so compelling. It has to start with us. It has to start with our leaders. God did not call the culture to change first. He called the leaders to be changed. And how did He do so? The messengers of the church. The messengers of the church. First, He points them at the home life. Look with me in verse 6, please. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Paul says, if you want to see who your leaders are, look at their home lives. This is so different from what we're taught in the rest of the world. What's going on at home doesn't really matter as long as you show up for the crowds. And Paul says, none of that in the church. He says, the people who are most blessed by you, who are most grateful for you, should be the ones living under your same roof. That's a high calling. As one pastor said, everything you need to know about a man is seen in the countenance of his wife and children. 
And he says an elder must be blameless. That doesn't mean perfect or there would be no elders. What it means is, is that you're not going to be charged with something. He's using a legal word there, but really he means that the outside world can't stand and say, look, you're more like us than you are like them. Look, you're more like us than you are like them. That means that, yes, the internal process of thinking about being an elder is important, but it's also important that outside people look at your life and think, whatever it is you're trying to be is more like Jesus than it is like these people here. An elder must be blameless, a husband of one wife and his children who are not open to the child, the charge of being wild and disobedient. That last one probably puts me under right then and there. But I think about it like this. One day, not too long from now, Knox is 12 years old today. So we're going to celebrate him and the church's birthday. But not too long from now, Knox will go away to college. And as he's talking to his roommate, at some point it'll come up and he'll be like, what did your dad do for a living? And Knox will say, uh, he's a pastor. And inevitably, that guy will say to Knox, oh man, tell me what that was like. That scenario haunts me. It haunts me. Far be it for me to use this pulpit or this place or my job as something that the people far away from me can can sing praises and can be glad for my presence and be blessed by me, but my own children, that they would think, I don't know that guy. I'm glad you had a good experience, but I don't know that man. He was always too busy. He was always too irritable. And Paul says, not so with the church. The people who are going to have the most important influence have to care more about their home life than they do of those outside of their roof. Is that true of our leadership here? That you care more about what you're like to your family than you do to the people who are cheering at work? See, the messengers of the church have to live a home life worth admiring. But they also have to have a heart life. That's where he jumps in in verses 7 and 8 and he says this, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, and disciplined. It's all of these things that the leader should be, not that the culture is supposed to be, that the ones in the church are supposed to be, and it starts with not being arrogant. Not being arrogant. Is that what the world would believe about us? That the church and the leaders of the church cannot be arrogant. He's saying just by them knowing you, they're supposed to see some humility, some lowness. That you know you don't have it all together. That you know your life was changed by grace. That you know that it's Jesus that rescued you. You didn't rescue yourself. We have to be humble. We can't take someone somewhere. We can't lead someone somewhere that we ourselves haven't been. 
you have to have a life-giving home life, but you also have to have this heart life that's, he says all these negative things, and then he says all of these positive things. These are the things you leaders in Jesus' church shouldn't have in your life, and these are the things that you should have in your life. He says not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Blameless, again, doesn't mean perfect. It means one couldn't bring a charge. Not arrogant means one who is soft and approachable. Soft and approachable. What if that's what our reputation was in the city? Not the ones who have all the answers and who have only good habits, but one who is humble. Not being quick-tempered. Do you see how each one of these things have to do about loving the other instead of building up the self? You don't want to be overbearing because you don't want to impose yourself on others. You don't want to be quick-tempered because you don't want to discourage others with your anger. You don't want to be given to drunkenness because you want to have energy left to give to others. You don't want to be violent because you don't want to wound others. You don't want to pursue dishonest gain because you don't want others to suffer at your hands. You see, we think of holiness as this thing that we're supposed to have and we're supposed to want, but ultimately it's pretty boring. If I can just fight off lust this time, if I can just not be envious, if I can not gossip, and maybe if I can just pray a little bit, if I can just read the Bible, I, 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 me, me, me. And Paul's saying if you want to see real spirituality, it's a group of people who gather together for the sake of others, not for the sake of self, not for the feeling good about oneself. If you're like me, it's so easy to term your whole Christianity based upon how you're doing that day. And Paul says real godliness has nothing to do with you. And starts with saying they can't be arrogant. He gives this list of things not to do and this list of things to do. You want to be hospitable. That means if your home is not open to coworkers and workout buddies and neighbors and kids' soccer parents, then seek another job at the church. That's what our whole church plant has been about, hospitality. That's why we try to warmly welcome you here. We try to warmly welcome you this afternoon at 4.30 to 6 out here in your city groups. We warmly welcome you. We want people to know that no matter what, their lives will be better and safer nearer to us than they are further from us that they love what is good, that they're self-controlled, that they're upright, that they're holy and they're disciplined. Do you see, we think the holiness of a Christian is what would detract unbelievers from looking closely at us. And what Paul is saying, it's the holiness of Christianity that will draw unbelievers in. It's so compelling, it's so attractive, it's so beautiful because they're working on their lives and not shaking their fingers at ours. He's not talking to the unbelievers. He's talking to the church leaders and he's saying, you do the work so that you can do the work like the surfboard. You wear yourself out for the sake of others. Stop asking, what about my sin? What about my need? What about, is this bad? Should I have given this up by now? Paul's saying real Christianity isn't about you. It's about those who don't know. And so he's saying to them, work hard not because you have to, but because you get to for the sake of those who are far off. That's where we've mixed the message. 
We've told them, work hard because you have to. That's what they've heard. We don't have to. Jesus hung on a cross and said, it is finished. It's not about what you have to do. It's already been done. It's about what you get to do for the one who hung on a cross for you. And that means church leaders or people that want to be church leaders to work so that they can do the work. Not because you have to, but because you get to. There's a movie that I've seen. It's several years old, and I can't commend it to you because it has very uh, a ton of violence and some very uh, mature content to it. But it's called 300, and it actually became famous because all of these actors went through this workout routine to be a part of the movie 300. So now there's the 300 workout. They trained 10 to 12 hours per day, five days a week, for four months. They trained at Jim Jones. Now this is a gym that is by invitation only. Most gymnasiums will give you a membership because they want so badly for you to come in when they know you'll be running away. This one you can only come if you're invited. And they say this, the objective is genuine fitness, not the appearance of fitness. Appearance is a consequence of fitness. The objective is genuine fitness, not the appearance of fitness. So they use kettlebells and balls and rings. Gerard Butler, the star of the movie, he worked out two hours longer than any one of the other guys in the movie because he didn't want to regret how he looked when he saw himself on screen. And they asked him why he worked so hard. Listen to this. He says, you know that every bead of sweat falling off your head, every weight you've pumped, the history of all of that is in your eyes. And he said, that was a great moment for me to put on that cape and put on that helmet and not think, man, I should have trained more. He said, instead, I was standing there feeling like a lion. The objective is genuine fitness, not the appearance of fitness. What if we as a church, instead of trying to look like we had it all together, we worked on ourselves with each other for the sake of those who are far off. It doesn't matter that we appear to be good, but that we were honest, loving what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, that it wasn't about the appearance, it was about the work that we were actually doing on ourselves. Rather than worry about all those people out there, we are going to focus on ourselves. So they want us to be hospitable, love what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Now listen, these things are what the posture and the measure of your life is supposed to look like in general. You always have faith and repentance. Nobody is doing all of these things at all times. Otherwise, we wouldn't have leaders in the church. Knox is 12 today. A year ago, he was 11 today, and it was in the middle of a global pandemic. And so his best friend and his dad came over, and all we could do for Knox's birthday party in a global pandemic is go for a walk around the neighborhood. Two dads and two sons. And I thought it was so sweet that he brought him over, and we're walking around the neighborhood. But our neighborhood is notorious for having people speed through it. Really reckless, and there's no sidewalks in our neighborhood. 
And so when they're speeding through it, you hear it coming and you're kind of standing off trying to get everybody off to the side of the road. And so what I will typically do is scream at the cars as they go by. Very good example that I am. That particular day on Knox's birthday, there was this car that was coming from a long ways off and he was speeding recklessly. And I was like, man, I'm trying to shoo the kids off the side of the road. I'm trying to wave at him like, hey, man, hey, man, down, down, down. He never touched the brakes, just starting to whip right by us. And as I saw him never even trying to slow down, I took the water bottle Gatorade out of Knox's hands and I sprayed the side of his car with it. And then he called the police on me. Good pastor, good dad. And regrettable because of our sin. The question is, what will you do about yours? I had to get down on my knees and look at my son's face later that day and say, that is not the kind of man I want you to be. And son, that's not the kind of man I want to be. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? He's not calling you to perfection. He's calling you to a life that seeks to love others, not build up self. You see, you have to have this home life. You have to have this head, excuse me, you have to have this heart life, blameless, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkards, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, but hospitable, loves what is good, self-controlled, not spraying water on cars upright, holy, and disciplined. And then he closes with this, and we'll close here. You have to have the right home life and the right heart, excuse me, heart life, and you have to have the right head life. You have to know the gospel. It has to get inside your bones. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So in other words, a leader has to Know the gospel in their bones. That's the sound doctrine that he's talking about. We talked about it last week. The sound doctrine is the gospel. And we have to know it so that we can encourage those who are weary and we can refute those who teach a different gospel. And the different gospel would be you have to get circumcised before you can fully be a Christian. Or you have to obey the Jewish laws and traditions fully before you can be a Christian. And Paul says no. He says in Galatians 3, are you who began with the Spirit going to be perfected by the flesh? And so what he's actually teaching is that these we as a church have to be dependent upon God for our sanctification for the way that we change. That if we're going to change in all these specific areas which are very uh, difficult because all of us struggle with them, that we're going to have to be dependent upon repentance and faith and the gospel over and over again, and that we're going to make change, but it's going to happen slowly. We have to be able to encourage and refute. I have friends who are beaten down by the law. Like dear friends who were saved by grace only to be discipled in human effort. In fact, it's one of the great problems in the church today. The unbelieving world hears three things wrongly. Three things wrongly. And we'll close here. And the three things they hear wrongly, it's the church's fault. First, they hear the fruit of conversion as the prerequisites for conversion. The fruit of conversion as the prerequisites of conversion. That means we point to them a changed life, and we say, once you have this changed life, then you can be converted. 
The Bible says it's absolutely the opposite. You are given a changed life by the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then there will begin to be fruit. We make people feel like they have to have it together before they even get here. And we model to them that the fruit of holiness means that we're being judgmental jerks instead of a life-giving blessing. Paul thought this party crowd in Crete would be grateful for the holiness of Christians. Is our party crowd in Chattanooga grateful for our holiness? Or do they feel condemned by it? The fruit of holiness is being judgmental jerks instead of life-giving blessings. And the last one is this. They hear the word conversion. Conversion, that's the quick thing. The repentance, the trusting in Jesus, the having Him as your Lord and Savior. They hear the word conversion and think that we're really talking about sanctification, which is this long process. So here's what I mean. When you're talking to an unbeliever and you're talking about Jesus, they think that you're calling them to this finished product of 50 years of sanctification instead of being calling to them who has no sanctification. It's like the Sally Lord Jones Bible says, all name and needed was nothing. It was the one thing he didn't have. They think we're saying, come and join us as long as you look like this way down here. When we're not even down there. And really what we're saying is all you need to have was nothing. It's the one thing you don't have. That's what he's talking about. What if we as a church focused more on our holiness than we did on the unholiness of others? What if we as a church worked on our behaviors and our attitudes in our homes more than we did shake our fingers at the ones who are out there? He says you could live as a church so beautifully that the, the bad guys from all around out there would be grateful that the church is in, your, in its place. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if your church was removed, just kind of erased off of the face of the planet, just one day disappeared, what would your unbelieving neighbors say was missing? Friends, at this church, we are going to wear ourselves out for the sake of those who aren't here yet. We are going to focus on our holiness for the sake of those who don't yet know we are not going to shake our fingers at them when we don't have it all together ourselves. Where are you in this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your spirit. We ask that you and your kindness would develop leaders here, elders here, men and also women older believers and young believers that focus intentionally and lovingly on their home, focus on their hearts, and defend the gospel in their own hearts and for the sake of others. God, work this in our church. We who are made alive by the Spirit will not be perfected by the flesh. 
We ask that we would know this in our hearts and that we would model it well for others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.